This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 52 A Burning Brand. All at once the thought came into my mind I have not sought out Mr. Brown. Upon that text I desire to depart from the direct line of my subject, and make a little excursion. I wish to reveal a secret which I have carried with me nine years, and which has become burdensome. Upon a certain occasion, nine years ago, I had said, with strong feeling, If ever I see St. Louis again, I will seek out Mr. Brown, the great grain merchant, and ask of him the privilege of shaking him by the hand. The occasion and the circumstances were as follows. A friend of mine, a clergyman, came one evening and said, I have a most remarkable letter here which I want to read to you, if I can do it without breaking down. I must preface it with some explanations, however. The letter is written by an ex-thief and ex-vagabond of the lowest origin and basest rearing, a man all stained with crime and steeped in ignorance but, thank God, with a mine of pure gold hidden away in him, as you shall see. His letter is written to a burglar named Williams, who is serving a nine-year term in a certain state prison for burglary. Williams was a particularly daring burglar, and plied that trade during a number of years. But he was caught at last and jailed, to await trial in a town where he had broken into a house at night, pistol in hand, and forced the owner to hand over to him eight thousand dollars in government bonds. Williams was not a common sort of person, by any means. He was a graduate of Harvard College, and came of good New England stock. His father was a clergyman. While lying in jail, his health began to fail, and he was threatened with consumption. This fact, together with the opportunity for reflection afforded by solitary confinement, had its effect, its natural effect. He fell into serious thought. His early training asserted itself with power, and wrought with strong influence upon his mind and heart. He put his old life behind him, and became an earnest Christian. Some ladies in the town heard of this, visited him, and by their encouraging words supported him in his good resolutions, and strengthened him to continue in his new life. The trial ended in his conviction and sentence to the state prison, for the term of nine years, as I have before said. In the prison he became acquainted with the poor wretch referred to in the beginning of my talk, Jack Hunt, the writer of the letter which I am going to read. You will see that the acquaintanceship bore fruit for Hunt. When Hunt's time was out, he wandered to St. Louis, and from that place he wrote his letter to Williams. The letter got no further than the office of the prison warden, of course. Prisoners are not often allowed to receive letters from outside. The prison authorities read this letter, but did not destroy it. They had not the heart to do it. They read it to several persons, and eventually it fell into the hands of those ladies of whom I spoke a while ago. The other day I came across an old friend of mine, a clergyman, who had seen this letter, and was full of it. The mere remembrance of it so moved him that he could not talk of it without his voice breaking. He promised to get a copy of it for me and here it is, an exact copy, with all the imperfections of the original preserved. 
It has many slang expressions in it, thieves are got, but their meaning has been interlined, in parenthesis, by the prison authorities. Lewis, June ninth, 1872. Mr. W., friend Charlie, if I may call you so, I know you are surprised to get a letter from me, but I hope you won't be mad at my writing to you. I want to tell you my thanks for the way you talked to me when I was in prison. It has led me to try and be a better man. I guess you thought I did not care for what you said, and at the first go-off I didn't. But I knowed you was a man who had done big work with good men, and want no sucker, nor want gassing, and all the boys knowed it. I used to think at night what you said, and for it I knocked off swearing months before my time was up, for I saw it want no good, no how. The day my time was up you told me if I would shake the cross, quit stealing, and live on the square for months, it would be the best job I ever done in my life. The state agent gave me a ticket to here, and on the car I thought more of what you said to me, but didn't make up my mind. When we got to Chicago on the cars from there to here, I pulled off an old woman's leather, robbed her of her pocketbook. I hadn't no more than got it off when I wished I hadn't done it. For a while before that I made up my mind to be a square bloke, for months on your word, but forgot it when I saw the leather was a grip, easy to get. But I kept close to her, and when she got out of the cars at a way-place, I said, Marm, have you lost something? And she tumbled, discovered, her leather was gone off. Gone. Is this it? says I, giving it to her. Well, if you ain't honest, says she, but I hadn't got cheek enough to stand that sort of talk, so I left her in a hurry. When I got here I had one dollar and twenty-five cents left, and I didn't get no work for three days as I ain't strong enough for roust about on a steamboat for a deckhand. The afternoon of the third day I spent my last ten cents for moons, large round sea-biscuit, and cheese, and I felt pretty rough, and was thinking I would have to go on the dipe, picking pockets, again, when I thought of what you once said about a fellow's calling on the Lord when he was in hard luck, and I thought I would try it once anyhow, but when I tried it, I got stuck on the start, and all I could get off was, Lord, give a poor fellow a chance to square it for three months, for Christ's sake, amen. And I kept a-thinking of it over and over as I went along. About an hour after that I was in Fourth Street, and this is what happened, and is the cause of my being where I am now, and about which I will tell you before I get done writing. As I was walking along, I heard a big noise, and saw a horse running away with a carriage with two children in it, and I grabbed up a piece of box cover from the sidewalk, and run in the middle of the street, and when the horse came up, I smashed him over the head as hard as I could drive. The board split to pieces, and the horse checked up a little, and I grabbed the reins and pulled his head down until he stopped. The gentleman what owned him came running up, and soon as he saw the children were all right, he shook hands with me and gave me a fifty-dollar greenback, and my asking the Lord to help me come into my head, and I was so thunderstruck I couldn't drop the reins nor say nothing. He saw something was up, and coming back to me said, My boy, are you hurt? And the thought come into my head just then to ask him for work, and I asked him to take back the bill and give me a job. Says he, Jump in here and let's talk about it, but keep the money. He asked me if I could take care of horses, and I said yes, for I used to hang round livery stables and 
often would help clean and drive horses. He told me he wanted a man for that work, and would give me sixteen dollars a month, and board me. You bet I took that chance at once. That night, in my little room over the stable, I sat a long time thinking over my past life, and of what had just happened, and I just got down on my knees, and thanked the Lord for the job, and to help me to square it, and to bless you for putting me up to it. And the next morning I'd done it again, and got me some new togs, clothes, and a Bible. For I made up my mind, after what the Lord had done for me, I would read the Bible every night and morning, and ask him to keep an eye on me. When I had been there about a week, Mr. Brown—that's his name—came in my room one night, and saw me reading the Bible. He asked me if I was a Christian, and I told him no. He asked me how it was I read the Bible instead of papers and books. Well, Charlie, I thought I had better give him a square deal in the start. So I told him all about my being in prison, and about you, and how I had almost done give up looking for work, and how the Lord got me the job when I asked him. And the only way I had to pay him back was to read the Bible and square it. And I asked him to give me a chance for three months. He talked to me like a father for a long time, and told me I could stay, and then I felt better than ever I had done in my life. For I had given Mr. Brown a fair start with me, and now I didn't fear no one giving me a back cap, exposing his past life, and running me off the job. The next morning he called me into the library, and gave me another square talk, and advised me to study some every day, and he would help me one or two hours every night. And he gave me a arithmetic, a spelling book, a geography, and a writing book, and he hers me every night. He lets me come into the house to prayers every morning, and got me put in a Bible class in the Sunday school, which I likes very much, for it helps me to understand my Bible better. Now, Charlie, the three months on the square are up two months ago, and, as you said, it is the best job I ever did in my life, and I commenced another of the same sort right away, only it is to God helping me to last a lifetime, Charlie. I wrote this letter to tell you, I do think God has forgiven my sins and heard your prayers, for you told me you should pray for me. I know I love to read his word, and tell him all my troubles, and he helps me, I know, for I have plenty of chances to steal, but I don't feel to as I once did, and now I take more pleasure in going to church than to the theater, and that wasn't so once. Our minister and others often talk with me, and a month ago they wanted me to join the church, but I said no, not now. I may be mistaken in my feelings. I will wait a while. But now I feel that God has called me, and on the first Sunday in July I will join the church. Dear friend, I wish I could write to you as I feel, but I can't do it yet. You know, I learned to read and write while prisons and I ain't got well enough along to write as I would talk. I know I ain't spelled all the words right in this, and lots of other mistakes, but you will excuse it, I know. For you know I was brought up in a poorhouse until I run away, and that I never knew who my father and mother was, and I don't know my right name, and I hope you won't be mad at me. But I have as much right to one name as another, and I have taken your name, for you won't use it when you get out, I know, and you are the man I think most of in the world. So I hope you won't be mad. I am doing well. I put ten dollars a month in bank with twenty-five dollars of the fifty dollars. If you ever want any or all of it, let me know, 
and it is yours. I wish you would let me send you some now. I send you with this a receipt for a year of Little's living age. I didn't know what you would like, and I told Mr. Brown, and he said he thought you would like it. I wish I was near you so I could send you Chuck refreshments on holidays. It would spoil this weather from here, but I will send you a box next Thanksgiving anyway. Next week Mr. Brown takes me into his store as light porter, and will advance me as soon as I know a little more. He keeps a big granary store wholesale. I forgot to tell you of my mission school, Sunday school class. The school is in the Sunday afternoon. I went out two Sunday afternoons and picked up seven kids, little boys, and got them to come in. Two of them knew as much as I did, and I had them put in a class where they could learn something. I don't know much myself, but as these kids can't read, I get on nicely with them. I make sure of them by doing after them every Sunday hour before school time. I also got four girls to come. Tell Mac and Harry about me. If they will come out here when their time is up, I will get them jobs at once. I hope you will excuse this long letter and all mistakes. I wish I could see you, for I can't write as I would talk. I hope the warm weather is doing your lungs good. I was afraid when you was bleeding you would die. Give my respects to all the boys, and tell them how I am doing. I am doing well, and every one here treats me as kind as they can. Mr. Brown is going to write to you some time. I hope some day you will write to me. This letter is from your very true friend, C. W., who you know is Jack Hunt. I send you Mr. Brown's card. Send my letter to him. Here was true eloquence, irresistible eloquence, and without a single grace or ornament to help it out. I have seldom been so deeply stirred by any piece of writing. The reader of it halted, all the way through, on a lame and broken voice. Yet he had tried to fortify his feelings by several private readings of the letter, before venturing into company with it. He was practicing upon me to see if there was any hope of his being able to read the document to his prayer-meeting with anything like a decent command over his feelings. The result was not promising. However, he determined to risk it, and did. He got through tolerably well, but his audience broke down early, and stayed in that condition to the end. The fame of the letter spread through the town. A brother minister came and borrowed the manuscript, put it bodily into a sermon, preached the sermon to twelve hundred people on a Sunday morning, and the letter drowned them in their own tears. Then my friend put it into a sermon, and went before his Sunday morning congregation with it. It scored another triumph. The house wept as one individual. My friend went on summer vacation up into the fishing regions of our northern British neighbors, and carried this sermon with him, since he might possibly chance to need a sermon. He was asked to preach one day. The little church was full. Among the people present were the late Dr. J. G. Holland, the late Mr. Seymour of the New York Times, Mr. Page, the philanthropist and temperance advocate, and, I think, Senator Fry of Maine. The marvelous letter did its wanted work. All the people were moved. All the people wept. The tears flowed in a steady stream down Dr. Holland's cheeks, and nearly the same can be said with regard to all who were there. Mr. Page was so full of enthusiasm over the letter that he said he would not rest until he made pilgrimage to that prison, 
and had speech with the man who had been able to inspire a fellow unfortunate to write so priceless a tract. Ah, that unlucky page! And another man! If they had only been in Jericho, that letter would have rung through the world, and stirred all the hearts of all the nations for a thousand years to come, and nobody might ever have found out that it was the confoundedest, brazenest, ingeniousest piece of fraud and humbuggery that was ever concocted to fool poor confiding mortals with. The letter was a pure swindle, and that is the truth, and take it by and large, it was without a compeer among swindles. It was perfect. It was rounded, symmetrical, complete, colossal. The reader learns it at this point, but we didn't learn it till some miles and weeks beyond this stage of the affair. My friend came back from the woods, and he and other clergymen and lay missionaries began once more to inundate audiences with their tears and the tears of said audiences. I begged hard for permission to print the letter in a magazine, and tell the watery story of its triumphs. Numbers of people got copies of the letter, with permission to circulate them in writing, but not in print. Copies were sent to the Sandwich Islands, and other far regions. Charles Dudley Warner was at church one day, when the worn letter was read and wept over. At the church door, afterward, he dropped a peculiarly cold iceberg down the clergyman's back, with the question, "'Do you know that letter to be genuine?' It was the first suspicion that had ever been voiced. But it had that sickening effect which first uttered suspicions against one's idol always have. Some talk followed. "'Why, what should make you suspect that it isn't genuine?' Oh, nothing that I know of, except that it is too neat, and compact, and fluent, and nicely put together, for an ignorant person, an unpractised hand. I think it was done by an educated man. The literary artist had detected the literary machinery. If you will look at the letter now, you will detect it yourself. It is observable in every line. Straightway the clergyman went off, with this seed of suspicion sprouting in him, and wrote to a minister residing in that town where Williams had been jailed and converted, asked for light, and also asked if a person in the literary line, meaning me, might be allowed to print the letter and tell its history. He presently received this answer. Reverend, <coughs> my dear friend, in regard to that convict's letter, there can be no doubt as to its genuineness. Williams, to whom it was written, lay in our jail and professed to have been converted, and Reverend Mr. Ahem, the chaplain, had great faith in the genuineness of the change, as much as one can have in such case. The letter was sent to one of our ladies, who is a Sunday-school teacher, sent either by Williams himself or the chaplain of the state's prison, probably. She has been greatly annoyed in having so much publicity, lest it might seem a breach of confidence or be an injury to Williams. In regard to its publication, I can give no permission. Though if the names and places were omitted, and especially if sent out of the country, I think you might take the responsibility and do it. It is a wonderful letter, which no Christian genius, much less one unsanctified, could ever have written, as showing the work of grace in a human heart, and in a very degraded and wicked one, it proves its own origin, and reproves our weak faith in its power to cope with any form of wickedness. Mr. Brown, of St. Louis, someone said, 
was a Hartford man. Do all whom you send from Hartford serve their master as well? P.S. Williams is still in the state's prison, serving out a long sentence of nine years, I think. He has been sick and threatened with consumption, but I have not inquired after him lately. This lady that I speak of corresponds with him, I presume, and will be quite sure to look after him. This letter arrived a few days after it was written, and up went Mr. William's stock again. Mr. Warner's low-down suspicion was laid in the cold, cold grave where it apparently belonged. It was a suspicion based upon mere internal evidence, anyway. And when you come to internal evidence, it's a big field and a game that two can play at. As witness this other internal evidence, discovered by the writer of the note above quoted, that it is a wonderful letter which no Christian genius, much less one unsanctified, could ever have written. I had permission now to print, provided I suppressed names and places and sent my narrative out of the country. So I chose an Australian magazine for vehicle, as being far enough out of the country, and set myself to work on my article. And the ministers set the pumps going again, with a letter to work the handles. But meantime Brother Page had been agitating. He had not visited the penitentiary, but had sent a copy of the illustrious letter to the chaplain of that institution, and accompanied it with, apparently, inquiries. He got an answer, dated four days later than that other brother's reassuring epistle, and before my article was complete it wandered into my hands. The original is before me now, and I here append it. It is pretty well loaded with internal evidence of the most solid description. State's Prison, Chaplain's Office, July 11, 1873 Dear Brother Page, Herewith please find the letter kindly loaned me. I am afraid its genuineness cannot be established. It purports to be addressed to some prisoner here. No such letter ever came to a prisoner here. All letters received are carefully read by officers of the prison before they go into the hands of the convicts, and any such letter could not be forgotten. Again, Charles Williams is not a Christian man, but a dissolute, cunning prodigal, whose father is a minister of the gospel. His name is an assumed one. I am glad to have made your acquaintance. I am preparing a lecture upon life seen through prison bars, and should like to deliver the same in your vicinity. And so ended that little drama. My poor article went into the fire. For whereas the materials for it were now more abundant and infinitely richer than they had previously been, there were parties all around me who, although longing for the publication before, were a unit for suppression at this stage and complexion of the game. They said, Wait, the wound is too fresh yet. All the copies of the famous letter except mine disappeared suddenly, and from that time onward the aforetime same old drought set in in the churches. As a rule the town was on a spacious grin for a while, but there were places in it where the grin did not appear, and where it was dangerous to refer to the ex-convict's letter. A word of explanation. Jack Hunt, the professed writer of the letter, was an imaginary person. The burglar Williams, Harvard graduate, son of a minister, wrote the letter himself, to himself, got it smuggled out of the prison, got it conveyed to persons who had supported and encouraged him in his conversion, where he knew two things would happen. The genuineness of the letter would not be doubted or inquired to, and the nub of it would be noticed, and would have valuable effect. 
the effect, indeed, of starting a movement to get Mr. Williams pardoned out of prison. That nub is so ingeniously, so casually flung in, and immediately left there in the tail of the letter, undwelt upon, that an indifferent reader would never suspect that it was the heart and core of the epistle, if he even took note of it at all. This is the nub. I hope the warm weather is doing your lungs good. I was afraid when you was bleeding you would die. Give my respects, etc. That is all there is of it. Simply touch and go. No dwelling upon it. Nevertheless, it was intended for an eye that would be swift to see it, and it was meant to move a kind heart to try to effect the liberation of a poor, reformed, and purified fellow lying in the fell grip of consumption. When I for the first time heard that letter read nine years ago, I felt that it was the most remarkable one I had ever encountered, and it so warmed me toward Mr. Brown of St. Louis that I said that if ever I visited that city again I would seek out that excellent man and kiss the hem of his garment, if it was a new one. Well, I visited St. Louis, but I did not hunt for Mr. Brown, for, alas, the investigations of long ago had proved that the benevolent Brown, like Jack Hunt, was not a real person, but a sheer invention of that gifted rascal Williams, burglar, Harvard graduate, son of a clergyman. End of chapter 52